Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 13, one through nine. Please read with me the highlighted verses. There were some present, some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I found none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and uh, I was just thinking uh, how humbling I think how humbling it is, what a privilege it is to be able to say that. Uh, this is a place full of just pretty incredibly faithful people, uh, servants and, uh, and folks pursuing the Lord, and I call it a privilege uh, to be the pastor here. So thank you uh, for that privilege. Um, this morning, falling towers and fig trees in Luke chapter 13, 1 to 9. My wife Olivia and I... Um, we were house guests staying in the mother-in-law quarters that was above the garage of some friends. And I had just gotten back from a morning run. I was uh, stretching in the, in the living room when I heard our hostess, the, the woman who owned the house, and she was kind of bumbling and stumbling up the stairs shouting, turn on the TV, turn on the TV. We're under attack. Um, unless you're too young to remember, you can probably say exactly where you were uh, and what you were doing on the morning of September 11th, 2001. If you're old enough, maybe you might be able to do the same thing for, say, uh, when the San Francisco Bay Bridge collapsed in an earthquake or when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded. Maybe you remember the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot or when JFK was assassinated and exactly what you were doing at that time. The same can be true for more personal tragedies. Um, for some of us, the greatest disaster in our lives will always be the day that we lost someone too special to describe or received a diagnosis that changed our understanding of life or the day that circumstances forced us to walk away from a dream into a life of burdens and responsibilities that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. 
A day of disaster is often a day that burns itself into our memory and into our psyche. Uh, disaster challenges our sense of security, our sense of control. A disaster across the country or even across the world still can have the powerful ability to smack us in the face with our own morality. A disaster can shake the foundations of a loosely held faith. It can threaten a comfortable life. It forces you to either deal with or ignore some really big questions. Sometimes questions that seem unanswerable. Why did this happen? Who's to blame for this? How could God allow such terrible suffering? And what did these particular people do to deserve it? And how we answer these questions in the face of tragedy, or if we choose to ignore them and not answer them, uh, can be as life-altering as the events themselves that burn themselves into our memories. Settling for answers that are less than the answers that Jesus gives can send you on a trajectory that leaves you living uh, in anxiety and fear or with a sense of hopeless fatalism or on a, a flight path to self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And so this morning, I want to invite us as we uh, continue in our series in the book of Luke to look at Jesus's answers uh, to the questions people were asking him in the midst of a tragedy. And let's look at the parable that he tells to help us try to understand what needs to happen in our own hearts to allow us to have a gospel heart reaction in the midst of tragedy and to have a gospel heart response to the challenges that we face on a day of tragic news. So a gospel heart reaction. Blaming and justifying our default settings in the human heart. In the face of tragedy, we want to find out who was to blame so we can know who to get and who to hold accountable. And we feel like we need to justify ourselves, have some reason to understand why this suffering came on someone else and not on ourselves. Why is it that I escaped? It's a, this is the unspoken context of Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, as Jesus is confronted with the news of two different tragedies. The first, a human atrocity, and the second, an accidental tragedy. On the night of January 7th, 2010, uh, it was Christmas Eve in the Eastern Christian tradition. Eight Coptic Christians were murdered by extremists as they were worshiping at a midnight Christmas worship service in Egypt. It was an act of ethnic violence designed to terrorize the feared minority, a Christian group, as well as designed to desecrate their worship at the same time. We'll attack them while they worship. Uh, we don't know much about this story that people are bringing to Jesus. This is the only account in history of the, the Galileans whose blood was mingled with sacrifices. But uh, what we do know is that it seems like a similar story 
Galileans were particularly known for their uh, zealous resistance to the Roman rule. Uh, some would have even called Galileans or used the word Galilean as a synonym for extremists. They were often singled out and made examples of by ruthless Roman leaders like Pilate. And so it seems like the local news cycle in Luke chapter 13 is full of a recent event in which Pilate had insulted and desecrated Jewish tradition by eliminating some political enemies while they were worshiping. I woke up this morning to news of another mass shooting at a dance studio where Asian Americans were celebrating a Lunar New Year. It's not that dissimilar. Whatever the real story was in Jesus' day, uh, whatever happened to these Galileans, it's an atrocity. And the people who reported to Jesus seem to be implying uh, that uh, for something like this to happen, those people must have had it coming. Maybe these guys got what they deserved, these Galileans. You see, whenever something terrible happens to someone, it seems like there's always someone who says that it must be that person's fault. It must be that bad things only happen to bad people. And this kind of pseudo-karma theology was as rampant in Jesus' day as it is in ours. John chapter 9 records an event where Jesus' disciples encounter a man who was born blind. And the question they ask is, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this guy was born blind? It must be somebody's fault. There were preachers who very publicly made a list of sins for which America was being punished when planes crashed into Twin Towers on September 11th. Well, when you add this kind of blaming, uh, when, you, when you take that and you add to that self-justification, obviously these people are to blame and uh, I, I am not, you very quickly come up with a, a formula for tribalism. Neuropsychologist Joshua Green argues that our brains are wired for tribalism. We intuit, he says, we intuitively divide the world into us and them and then favor us over them. They suffered because they're evil and wrong and deficient, and we didn't because we're righteous and right and competent. We do the same thing in our own hearts. When we're suffering, we say, why is God punishing me? What did I do to deserve this? And let's be clear, it is wise to take account in our lives and consider if I am receiving or living through the consequences for misdeeds or decisions that I know that I've made. But, if, but, but believing that sin is always and only the only explanation for suffering doesn't fit with the reality that we live in. If this was the case, then it follows that if you lose your job or if you have a terrible diagnosis, then you must have somehow brought this upon yourself. That's what Job's friends told him in the Old Testament. Uh, Job's friends relentlessly insist with him that he must have done something wrong because, quote, who that was innocent was ever punished? Surely only the guilty get punished. And Jesus rejects that thinking. He says, 
do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. This is interesting. It's interesting because Jesus does not refute the assumption that those who died in this atrocity were sinners. What he rejects is the notion that those who survived were somehow not. Jesus' statement assumes that we're all sinners. In fact, his comment assumes that he, he assumes that this is so obvious to anyone who looks around that he doesn't even seem to feel like he needs to argue the point. Yes, sometimes people suffer the consequences of their own action and sin, but the injustice in the world is not that the injustice in the world is not that some have suffered and died. The scandalous thing about reality is that anyone survives. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the scripture says. Why hasn't God given us what we deserve? On August 1st, 2007... 35W Bridge that spans the Mississippi River in Minneapolis, Minnesota, collapsed during rush hour traffic, killing 13 commuters on their way home to their families from work. Olivia and I drove that bridge regularly while we were students in the Twin Cities in college. Why did the bridge collapse on those 13 people and not on us? Jesus mentions a tragedy that's probably similar. Again, we don't have a lot of other historical context to know what he's talking about. Uh, he mentions a tower falling in Siloam. And what we know is that Siloam was famous for its pools and its springs. And so uh, a reasonable assumption is that some sort of aqueduct or other construction project there involving a tower collapsed, killing 18 people. And Jesus makes the same point again. Do you think that, those, that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. It's important to recognize a few other things that Jesus' response doesn't do. In his response, Jesus doesn't minimize tragedy or the loss of life. This is, uh, this is not a philosophical blow-off. Since we can explain why this is happening, we don't have to be compassionate. That's not what he's doing. Uh, he's not negating the fact that both of these are disasters. One's an atrocity, the other a tragedy, but they're causes for grieving and lament and certainly the pursuit of justice and rectification. If we rush to theological explanations in the midst of tragedy, uh, we might be ignoring suffering and loss and real people in our callous, philosophical, theological explanations, in our callous lack of care for victims. This passage, to be clear, is not the passage that we would go to uh, looking for Jesus' instruction for the way to care for those who suffer. Uh, I would recommend that if you're looking for that, consider uh, going, uh, going back and listening to Stephen Mockford's 
sermon from New Year's Day on the Good Samaritan. Jesus uh, gives good instruction there on what neighboring looks like. But here uh, he is addressing the question, why not me? And uh, what did these people do to deserve this? He hasn't excused the heinousness of Pilate's actions or the injustice of Roman rule, and he hasn't ignored the ramifications of shoddy engineering in aqueduct towers. Uh, But uh, he is addressing the heart condition of the people who are encountering him. Secondly, his, his response doesn't affirm a major assumption in the question that they ask. And that assumption is that this life, our earthly current reality, is the ultimate reward that God either gives or takes away as compensation or punishment. The word that we have translated here uh, as offenders, Jesus says, do you think that these in Siloam were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? That word offenders is actually translated from a Greek word that literally means debtor. Do you think that they were worse debtors than all the others? And in his response, Jesus is uncovering the reality that this life is a gift and it's not our ultimate destination. In fact, we are not currently getting what we deserve. None of us. We're all debtors, and every one of us is living a borrowed life right now on loan from the Lord. On loan, a loan which we do not have the means to pay for. According to Jesus, a gospel reaction you know, a, 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 a heart reaction to the news of tragedy pushes back against that uh, instinct or that hardwired response to blame or self-justify. But instead, a gospel heart reaction to tragedy is a deep realization of the undeserved gift that every day of life is. That every day is a gift from God, undeserved because we all reject God. We all live as if we're the lords of our own lives. We all take for granted this incredible loan that we've been given. So a gospel heart response. Jesus says twice that tragedy is an opportunity to repent. He says, after both Stories, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does it mean to respond with repentance? The Westminster Confession says, in repentance, a sinner, quote, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of their sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, so grieves for and hates their sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. This is the way we speak at my house. (laughs) My children have called me odious for sure. The odiousness, the, 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 the filthiness and the stink of your own 
sin. There were three things in there that I'm not sure that you caught. Uh, The Westminster Confession says that repentance involves confession, it involves contrition, and it involves change. Confession is the intellectual part of repentance. It's the acknowledgement of sin, realizing intellectually and admitting that I'm guilty of pride or lust or greed, bitterness or worry or self-pity or self-righteousness and hatred or racism or all of the different ways that we try to be lords of our own lives and uh, find people to blame and justify ourselves. And confession is the intellectual realization that is true about me and my own heart and about my actions. Contrition is the emotional element of repentance. This is uh, sniffing and smelling that sin is odious and filthy. It's to feel sorry and sadness and remorse. And not just because we got caught red-handed but, uh, and that we have to face the consequences, but because we realize and we're grieved by the fact that it's ugly and it's made our lives ugly and it offends a God who loves us and has given us this incredible gift of life. And the, and the third part, change, is actually the action part of repentance. True repentance is not just confession, intellectual consent, and it's not just remorse, I feel bad, but it's actually turning away from ourselves and towards God. When we were junior high youth pastors, Olivia and I used to make the kids do this dance. We would say repentance is turning around 180 degrees and going God's way. It's not really a dance. It's just a a spin. Right? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. Repentance is Jesus' prescribed response in the heart at the news of tragedy, which is a fancy way of saying when you see tragedy, you should say to yourself, that could have been me, that should have been me. Am I right with the Lord? Am I ready? Would I have been ready to meet him today if I had been on that bridge? Which begs the question, that brings us back to the original question, right? Why not me? Why was it those 13 on the bridge and not Olivia and I? Why did they suffer while I did not? When Jesus starts talking about this farmer, he's actually beginning to answer that question. He tells this story about a fig tree. In the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, God repeatedly compares his people to a grapevine or to a fig tree. Uh, He says, you are my vine in Joel chapter uh, 1 verse 7 to his people. Uh, He says that his people are the first fruit on the fig tree in Hosea chapter 9. So it wouldn't have been lost on Jesus' listeners when he starts telling the story about a fig tree that had been planted by a careful farmer that was bearing no fruit. It wouldn't have been lost on them that Jesus was talking about them. He's talking about us. People who, as John the Baptist might say, fail to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
in Matthew chapter 3. So when Jesus starts talking about a farmer who rightfully wants to cut down a tree that's bearing no fruit, he's addressing the question, why keep this tree around if it's not fruitful? Why, why not this one, right? Why did, when we ask why not me, we're asking, why did these people suffer while I did not? And according to Jesus, the answer is not because I have been so wonderfully fruitful and faithful and therefore uh, avoided disaster. The answer, according to Jesus, is because of God's grace and his patience. It's because the scripture tells us Jesus is interceding for his people and for creation and asking God to give us a little bit more time to repent and bear fruit. The passage says that he says, the, the vine dresser comes and he says, sir, let it alone for a year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Did you notice what the gardener suggested that he might do to make way for this plant to bear fruit? What he's going to do? He's going to dig it up. He's going to expose its roots. He's going to cover it with manure. That sounds pretty traumatic. And if you think about it, it sounds like the gardener think that, thinks that that might be the only way to shock this tree into bearing fruit. According to the short story, uh, the American short story writer, who's very close to my heart, Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> the best way to the heart is straight through the rib cage. She says, and you will find if you read much Flannery O'Connor, that indeed the intrusion of grace, she says, that is the invitation to change is almost always violent in her stories. It hurts. It's messy. And even then, many of her characters, like many of us, don't see the opportunity that God is providing for them to change in the midst of tragedy. Opportunities for genuine spiritual growth come in challenges. We'd like them to come in sweet, quiet places with hugs and encouragement. But more often than not, uh, they come when we face tragedy, we face challenge, we face the unexpected. And in that moment, we allow uh, God's pruning to soften and humble our hearts. Will we allow tragedy and suffering in our lives and that which we hear about in the world to soften and humble our hearts? Not only to compassion and to care for those who hurt, but to repentance of our own sin in the great hope and promise that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away sin, that God forgives. Will we seize the grace that God provides in whatever time God provides it, will we seize the opportunity of the time that God is giving us, right? He's listening to Jesus' intercession and giving more time for us to repent and bear fruit. And what would it look like if, in fact, uh, you know, the people of God 
in the midst of a world that knows only tragedy and blame and self-justification were a people that bore the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control.